Listen in as Dr. Cashy discusses some mechanisms behind diabetes, insulin resistance, and glucose intolerance. The good doctor emphasizes the role local nutrient cycling may play in maintaining a healthy metabolism and, in addition, highlighting the complementary rules of exercise and diet in promoting fat loss and overall metabolic health. Roll the intro! Hello! Hello! And welcome to Coffee with Cashy. I am your host, Dr. Trevor Cashy. Today's very special episode of Coffee with Cashy. Maybe, maybe you could call it Science Sunday. Maybe this will be a recurring thing. Who knows? But it's alliterative, which means it is exactly three and a half percent more legit because that is a requirement of legitness, alliterativeness. All right. So today's Science Sunday. Kind of spicy kind of boring, kind of nerdy, trying to keep this stuff moderately entertaining. Um, today's lesson is really how to get diabetes in nine simple steps. <laughs> okay, so here's what you're learning. Okay, some serious, some serious pathophysiology here, but in some pretty simple language. A um, couple of questions to, to keep in mind when you're going through this, when you're thinking about this is, do you think that these are possibly obesity-related diseases, how they're currently described, or is it possible that they are couch-related diseases, where they're more related to things like activity and lifestyle than they are uh, just generic body fatness? And lastly, with all of the sugar stuff, do you think it has more to do with a sugar toxicity or an activity-slash-lifestyle deficiency? Some interesting things to keep in mind considering the nutritive components of sugar that you guys have learned about over the previous lessons. Okay, that reminds me, if you're interested in having a body that looks as good as it works and works as good as it looks, then make sure to head on over to smartpeoplecomehere.com. The challenge is coming up and it actually is filling up. So people who are watching these videos, they get first dibs before Dr. Cashy releases it to the public and it fills up. So thank you for watching. Head on over there. It's pretty cool stuff, all right? It's a little bit of background here. A little bit of background. Muscles are responsible for the lion's share of whole body sugar disposal. You guys learned about that in the previous lesson, or previous lessons, rather. Now, from about 75% all the way up to 95% or so. Now, the infamous hormone insulin signals the uptake, signals the uptake of blood sugar into the muscle and other places too, okay? Now, but in the context of muscle being the lion's share of the glucose disposers, the sugar disposers, insulin signals that uptake. Therefore, it stands to reason that any form of resistance to insulin's function, you insolent towards insulin, it leads to health problems. It leads to health problems. Now, metabolic health, again, is essentially the body's ability to bring anything that's high back down low again, and anything that's low back up again. You may recognize this as a fancy science word, homeostasis. It's kind of a big deal. It's kind of a big deal. Now, sugar's three musketeers, the brain, the muscles, and the liver, they're the heaviest hitters of sugar homeostasis. The muscles are, well, the muscle of the operation. The brains are the brains of the operation. And the liver, well, delivers the goods. Wow, that worked out well if you're into dad jokes. Jeez. <clears throat> Now your brain consumes sugar 24 hours a day at a relatively regular rate. 
you could say it's on a fixed income, although the brain survives pretty well on a fixed income. Now, you can also say that the circulatory system kind of acts as the sugar storage for the brain. The muscles consume sugar as needed from stores that it keeps in-house. So the muscles actually store sugar inside of them. It's pretty cool. It's, it's called glycogen, right? Think about like, like granular starchy stuff in a potato. It turns out humans and animals have that stuff too. It's just called glycogen instead. If you look at it under a, a fancy microscope, you can see that the shapes are a little bit different, but it's, it's pretty similar for what it is. Now, the glycogen fills back up after the muscles consume that glycogen by sucking it up from the blood. The liver also stores glycogen as well. We'll get into that in a second. Now, the, the liver regularly consumes sugar because it does pretty much all the freaking ass grunt work of the body. People love to ignore the liver until it starts failing. In fact, the liver is so dependable that people love bragging about how much they can punish it. There's even cartoons of people like going out and partying and then waking up the next day and the liver sitting next to him with a cup of coffee calling him an a-hole. Like that's how, that's how neglectful people are of this workhorse because it is so dependable, people often take it for granted. In other words, the brain and the muscles and the liver, they, they can take a high blood sugar number and make it lower. And it's pretty much prioritized in that way. Brain gets first dibs, muscles get second dibs, and liver gets third dibs. Now, liver's last on the totem pole for, for blood sugar, for sugar, because, because liver is the only one of the three musketeers that can bring the blood sugar back up if it goes back down. Ah, there's where... That's the biggest reason, like the biggest, probably the most important function of the liver has in this context, okay? It's the only one that can bring the blood sugar back up if it gets too low. Now, once the sugar gets in the muscles, it's kind of sort of locked in there. There's some fancy biochemistry for that, you know, phosphate groups attaching and all sorts of other stuff. That's for another cup of joe with other group of nerds. However, once, once sugar is stored in the liver, it can get released again. And, and the liver stores the sugar in the form of glycogen and it uses that as a, it slow drips it out into the bloodstream to help keep the brain working. Because remember, if we consider the, the circulatory system kind of the, the blood, the storage system for sugar in the brain, that actually ends up indirectly getting stored in the liver. And then the liver slow drips that sugar into the bloodstream to keep the brain and all the other organs happy as it were, right? Now, this is probably the biggest reason why you can accomplish really something quite amazing. One is that you only eat for a few minutes per day. Relatively speaking, you only eat for a few minutes per day, but you can supply nutrients to your organs 24 hours per day. You have 24 hour a day, seven day a week, 365 day a year energy requirements, but you can take in energy, you can take in nutrients in a way that is relatively random and your body can make that work. And that's pretty amazing. It's pretty cool. I hope you can see how this is kind of a big deal, mostly because it's important to me. <laughs> okay. <clears throat> but now that you know the muscles are the heaviest hitters, okay, as per the beginning in the previous lessons, they, they consume or dispose of rather the lion's share. They are the most important in terms of bringing the high numbers back down to normal. And the brain, although it does have first dibs, it does survive just fine on a fixed income. What happens when somebody starts turning left? Back to that cartoon, Beyonce. They go Beyonce, right? Everything to the left in a box, okay? What happens when somebody starts turning left? When the person starts becoming a potted plant, what happens then? Well, the liver does have third dibs, so here's the first step out of the nine steps. 
So we're nine, nine simple steps to diabetes. Here's step one. The liver has third dibs on consuming blood sugar because the liver's main role as part of sugar's musketeer, three musketeers is making sure that there's sugar available more than there is, more than it will consume it, okay? The brain survives just fine on a fixed income. And step two now, okay, if there's an overage, the muscles, like the brain, for the sake of this conversation, only use what they consume. But if they consume less and less, okay, in other words, activity goes down, the liver now takes on the brunt of disposing what the muscles would have otherwise disposed of. So that's step two, right? Step one is understanding that the liver's role is to really help keep blood sugar up. And that when you use your muscles or the muscles get used less and less, well, then there's more blood sugar around and then it ends up putting that brunt on the liver to dispose of it, all right? Now, step three is really that the liver is only meant to deal with relatively small overages for long periods, though. The liver is only meant to deal with relatively small overages as a way to maintain fuel efficiency. Now, maintaining fuel efficiency was kind of a big deal before Froyo. Anyway, it does this because it, it tops itself off with sugar, okay? The overage, it will top itself off. So this is step four, okay? It'll top itself off with sugar in case duty calls and blood sugar drops from increased demand relatively randomly, right? Having extra sugar available in the liver allows it to, if it, your adrenaline dumps perhaps, your blood sugar goes up. Where does that blood sugar come from? It comes from your liver, okay? So that's why it's very important for it to have that sort of storage, okay? Probably for the muscles, right? And it also turns out if you're super stressed out, your blood sugar gets higher because that whole fight or flight sort of, you know, thing people love to talk about, right? You convince yourself you're going to die, but the reality is that you're just fine and might be embarrassed. <laughs> and your brain's like, whoa, you're going to get your head chopped off. Let's raise your blood sugar so you can run away. Anyway, the first step is that the liver takes the overage of blood sugar and tops, it, tops off its own stores of sugar. Then any overage above that, it starts converting it into fat. All right, and now we'll come to step five, which is pretty cool and the crux of a lot of this. It's really, really cool. I think where a lot of people find a disconnect is that there's a deficiency or really just an ignorance of the understanding that the liver is the one that's creating a lot of the fat. The liver is converting that extra sugar into fat. Back to the liver. It goes back to the liver a lot of times. Okay, step five is that, all right, after the liver topped off its own sugar stores, after there's even more left over, it'll start converting that into fat in a fancy process called de novo lipogenesis. Now, six, step six is that some percentage of that fat, some percentage of the fat the liver makes gets deposited in and around the liver, which makes sense. That's where the liver is. But where's the liver? Somewhere around here, right? Somewhere around here. Now, ironically enough, that is a practically ubiquitously hated fat storage zone. Hmm, okay, keep that in mind too, right? For step seven, everyone's nice and happy and topped off, right? As, as evidenced by the multiple overages and then the liver converting that extra overage into fat, okay? Here's what ends up happening. One, they stop listening to insulin, Okay, or they start ignoring insulin's knock on the door now because insulin is what is, is communicating, hey, this needs to get disposed. 
dispose of me knocking on the door, all right? Now they start ignoring that because they're topped off with all, with all of the sugar they could ever want, at least right now. And this makes sense. This sort of insulin resistance is normal and healthy. Shutting your doors when you have enough is really an ethical responsibility of the brain and the muscles in the liver. Most of the muscles in the liver uh, to, so that you can keep a blood sugar stable and fuel efficiency relatively high, which again was a big deal before Froyo existed. Now the second part of the insulin resistance stage, okay, is the from you know the obvious part of we're shutting our doors because we have enough to now the not so obvious part is that as the storing of the extra happens while being a potted plant, here's where a lot of the fun and fun stuff starts to happen, fun in quotes here, is that storing fat as a sedentary person is a little bit different than storing fat as an active person. Now, storing that extra while being a potted plant, okay, that's where things end up getting kind of spicy in terms of metabolic health. Mind you, Again, the muscles in the liver kind of shut their doors because they're like, hey, we had enough insulin. It's all good. Um, but eventually, their ears end up getting clogged with fat. <laughs> their ears get, end up getting clogged with fat. And they go from ignoring insulin because they've had enough sugar to becoming deaf to insulin, even if they do need sugar. Oh. Oh. See how this might be a problem? Getting nutrients in there becomes a problem now. Okay. And now we're on to step eight after that insulin resistance stage ends up occurring, okay? This about this time, the pancreas starts acting like an immigrant grandmother that lived through the depression, right? David, make sure to eat your fourth helping of beef stroganoff so you can grow up big and strong. I wanna be a great grandmother. That's basically what happens with your pancreas, right? Now, even at a polite refusal, even at a polite refusal, she just gets louder and increasingly insistent that you eat more and more even when you're full. If you tell her no, she laughs and proceeds to force feed you anyway. It's kind of what happens with the pancreas and insulin. <laughs> eat your fifth helpings, David! Okay, a lot of people think the pancreases, or more specifically insulin's role in all of this, is to send proper communication so that you can get nutrients into the muscles and brain and the liver and everywhere else. And that makes perfect sense, right? Your brain and liver and muscles and all these places, they need nutrients, so insulin's job is to get the nutrients in there. Uh, that's a sensical conclusion, and it is wrong. It is wrong. It makes perfect sense to think insulin does that, and it is wrong. I'll tell you why. Okay, it's really more of a convenient coincidence that it happens more than that's the purpose. What's really happening is that the pancreas slash insulin are sending the communication to get the nutrients out of the bloodstream, where a lot of people think, well, the role is to get nutrients into the brain and muscles and liver. It's really to get nutrients out of the bloodstream. Big difference, big difference. One more time, people think insulin's role is to get nutrients into places, which makes sense, but it's wrong. The reality is that insulin's role is to get nutrients out. In this case, out of the bloodstream, okay? Now, when you integrate insulin's role in couch-related diseases in this way, it makes, things, it makes things make much more sense. Well, what justifies this sort of premise? Well, if the muscles and the brain and the liver and everywhere else had all the sugar they desired, well, then insulin would go down. But alas, even if they get all of the sugar they need, insulin stays up. Why? Because blood sugar stays up. Therefore, where people think insulin's role is to get sugar into the muscles and brain and liver, which is quite romantic, uh, really its true job in this context is to get sugar out of the blood rather than into the muscles and brain and liver and everywhere else. Hopefully that makes sense. 
Why is this important? Because if blood sugar stays high, even when all the other organs get what they need, the pancreas starts sending out more and more and more insulin. If blood sugar stays high, even when insulin is out, well then must need more insulin to get rid of it, to get out of the bloodstream, right? That angry or, or rather that excited, that excited grandmother shoving that ninth serving of paella down your gullet, right? <laughs> now, <clears throat> excuse me. Now, the more insulin that's floating around, now there already is some form of resistance, right? They had enough, they close their doors. Well, then they start accumulating fat and that fat clogs their ears and they go from ignoring insulin to being deaf, even if they do need it, even if they do need it. And now as even more starts floating around, they build up a even greater tolerance to it. Hopefully that sort of uh, mechanism is intuitive. A lot of it's like caffeine, right? You, you think of it like that. I drink 10 cups of coffee every day and I feel, you know, relatively similar. I mean, different mechanisms, but it's an easy way to think of it like that, okay? Now, the more insulin that's floating around, the more organs build up a tolerance to it, also known as insulin resistance. Now, we're on to step nine. Eventually, organs get so resistant to insulin floating around that now even more blood sugar starts floating around, even with high amounts of insulin. This, for the sake of today's lesson, is glucose intolerance. So now this poor person is in a state of high insulin and high blood sugar at the same time. You see how this kind of puts someone in a pickle? There's a hormone floating around that facilitates the transfer of nutrients into the areas of the body that need nutrients, or in this case, out of the blood, but it's, it's being ignored. Now, if you need those nutrients and the signal to get the nutrients out of the bloodstream and into those other places is broken, well, then you're effectively malnourished. Even if you have all the nutrients you need, getting them to where they need to go becomes a problem. And so it ends up becoming the same as being malnourished. Hopefully that makes sense. This is essentially what diabetes is. See how that puts someone in a pickle. Now, this is totally separate from the complications associated with diabetes, like nerve damage and organ failure. These complications more or less arise from what's called advanced glycation biochemistry, which is basically the same as a glitter bomb going off in your house. Glitter gets everywhere, sticks to everything, except in this case, instead of getting stuck to your carpet and furniture and your vents, it's sticking to your optic nerve, making you go blind, destroying your microvasculature, making you lose fingers and toes, busting your nephrons and destroying your kidney function. <laughs> sure, make, make sugar sound scary, right? If you suck at math, it sure does. <laughs> That's kind of the problem. Uh, now, now you know more of the truth behind what's really happening. Really, it all ends up kind of falling on the liver, actually. The, the neglect of the liver's function and the nutrient cycling happening there. Now you kind of understand the truth behind what's happening. A lot of people think diabetes runs in their family, but the reality is that nobody runs in their family. But, but if the muscles start doing muscly things again, and they need that energy, where do you think it comes from? It comes from the liver. Aha, uh -huh. so where does the liver pull from to supply energy for itself and the brain and the muscles and everything else? Wherever is closest. Mmm, all, all those places where it took it, right? That's good, okay? This is why even in equally fat populations who get equally fat at the same rate, the fat population that's active on average will be healthier and more metabolically res resilient and be better looking by comparison. And, heck, even consume metric truckloads more sugar over the same amount of time. Now, even though there's a constant overage of nutrients, in this case, sugar probably, the liver still cycles through the nutrients locally. Where is locally? Here! Hmm? Hmm! This means the three musketeers stay metabolically healthy despite accumulating excess fat. Why? Because the excess fat ends up getting deposited in other places than here. Okay? 
That's what local nutrient cycling means and why it's so useful to keep you metabolically healthy, even in the presence of toxic sugar, okay? So what does that really mean? Does that mean sugar is toxic or does that mean there's an exercise deficiency? Hmm? Something to keep in mind. This is why people, like, they get on their soapboxes and bitch about toxic sugar and processed foods and whatever other misguided absurdities they spout. But think about the, like, run this thought experiment. Why are these people healthy and these people are sick if the healthier people are consuming way more sugar? Does this mean that sugar is the issue or activity is? Okay, the logic and the data are pretty clear. Now, what they generally think are food-related and obesity-related diseases are actually couch-related diseases. Activity is an inferior avenue for fat loss and a superior avenue for metabolic health. Food and eating is an inferior avenue for metabolic health and a superior avenue for fat loss. The consensus is, tragically, that these are adversarial roles, where one crosses out the other and there's constant battle. The reality is that they're complementary roles. They simultaneously shrink each other's negatives and bolster each other's positives. So here's what you've learned. Here's what you've learned. Some relatively serious pathophysiology in pretty simple language. Hmm? You got to think about, well, is this really an obesity-related thing or is it a couch-related thing? And is sugar really toxic or is there really just a deficiency in activity? Hmm? Fun things to think about. Stay rational. Until next time. Want to continue having coffee with Dr. Kashi? Head over to iTunes to subscribe, rate, and leave a review. It is very much appreciated. Thank you, and see you next week. Dr. Kashi is out!